All right, tremendous singing this evening. Appreciate that very much. Let's take our Bibles, please, this evening and turn to Acts chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 27 tonight. As you're turning there, I read, actually heard on a podcast this week, an interesting statistic that essentially 80% of all consumer traffic on the internet is essentially classified as video content. So that is the 80% of what's being uh, viewed is, is essentially uh, video media. 50% of all consumer content on Facebook is video and uh, by the end of 2018 it was projected to be uh, 70%. Not sure if it actually met its goal or not, Uh, but YouTube obviously is all video, and we know that that's here to stay. LinkedIn added video a few, about a year ago, and dramatically impacted the way that platform uh, operates. And another interesting statistic, 92% of all users of mobile phones have shared or will share videos with other people. So videos are a pretty uh, powerful media. We've even taken advantage of video media here for, I remember watching a a pretty powerful uh, presentation, I don't know if it was during 4th of July or Veterans Day or something, where we, many of us teared up watching uh, the screen as it considered counting the costs and being thankful for those who uh, give their lives for us, and obviously that's a tremendous reminder of uh, what Jesus Christ has done. But nonetheless, video is a very powerful media, very powerful tool. And I sort of dismissed the statistics for a while until they made this comment, and I thought it was, uh, it was very helpful. Uh, video, or the goal of video, is essentially to humanize that which is Uh, less than humane or or less than human. In other words, to to make it personal, to humanize the experience rather than just reading it. And certainly through words, we can can get to the point where we we identify personally with something or someone. But video, doesn't it? The the images, the sounds, everything, even the, the music that is behind the video. Uh, brings about a, a, a culmination of humanizing experience, getting, getting someone comfortable uh, with you. And in the case of this podcast, it had to do with social media and the, and the church, and it was really kind of making the point about video and, and how even churches can utilize videos to get people to be comfortable coming to your church before they even come. And there's tremendous value in that, isn't there? I mean, we, we want to be welcoming. I, I was standing at the door today and, and chatted with a few guests. In fact, I forgot to give, well, Pastor Mike wasn't here today, but I have the guest. Don't forget to remind me. I have a guest card in my, my suit. It will stay there for a couple weeks if I forget. I'm going to take it out or I'll forget. I'm going to put it right here. All right, no, that will forget too. I'm going to give it to Ben. Ben, give this back. Give this to somebody that, that's responsible. Okay? There. Whew. All right. He'll just give it back to me, and that's a bad choice, Ben. Not responsible. But, but they were saying, hey, you know, we feel really welcome here. 
And you guys did a good job of making us feel welcome. We want people to feel welcome. We want people, why? Because at the end of the day, there's a theology behind that. That's the love of Christ. If they can't feel welcome, uh, what, what, what do we have to give them if we don't have at least that to give anybody? And so videoing, videos are a, are a way to humanize. And, and really, as we look at Acts chapter 21 and 22, that, that really does come to mind when we consider tonight that um, personally relating the gospel elicits a powerful response. That, in other words, giving the gospel in, in such a personal way, it really, it really demands something from those who hear. And there is, I'd argue, nothing quite like personally relating the gospel. And if you really kind of step back for a minute and you consider even how Pastor Tim has been challenging us through 1 Thessalonians and, and then Philippians this morning, it, it really is a personal relationship of the gospel, isn't it? And so we really don't get too comfortable or, or we don't really stay the status quo if, if, if we are doing the job of personally relating the Word of God together and for each other and, and, and to each other. And so tonight, as we really look at the the, the next part of the narration here in, in Acts, the narrative of Paul. And remember, he's in Jerusalem now. Kind of culminates to, to one of his goals to get back to Jerusalem. And, and, and he's, he's working hard personally trying to relate to those Jewish Christians, remember from last week, who, um, who had a hard time because there were people... Remember, there were people kind of uh, misrepresenting Paul and saying that Paul demands uh, that you can no longer, or you should no longer be circumcised and, and really attacking the law. And Paul wasn't doing that in any sense, but, but that was kind of spreading throughout the church in Jerusalem. And, and that, made, that made those who were, who were still part of the, the ins and outs and the traditions of the law very uncomfortable. And remember, Paul and James and Peter, they really... Uh, or Peter, really uh, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they really kind of settled a lot of that and said, you know what, it's okay. And, and the law isn't for salvation, but it's okay. And, and we're, gonna, we're just going to, to very oversimplify, we're going to get along and we're going to be unified through Jesus Christ. And so smack dab here in Acts chapter 21, we find Paul not only wrestling with the Jewish Christians, but wrestling with the Jews, not Christian. And we're going to pick up here in verse 27. And we're going to see the theme that, that as Paul personally relates the gospel, it, it really does elicit or provoke, demand, a response. A powerful response at the end of the day, if it's going to be done right. And... Really, it, 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 we could look at the text this evening in two ways. We could see, in one sense, the overwhelming rejection of personally relating the gospel. I mean, Paul puts it all out there. And he is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly rejected. And then in the middle of the story in Acts, Luke kind of turns rejection on its head and, and, and records Paul's 
testimony that he gives to the Jews. The marvelous, the second side of personally relating the gospel, the marvelous transformation that the, the gospel, uh, personally relating the gospel elicits or demands. So it's either one of two things. It's either a rejection or it's a transformation. And I, I think for most in this room tonight, we, we are so thankful that we, we are on the, the, the side of the coin that is transformed, aren't we? Right? Just thinking about the songs that we sang leading up to tonight in Acts chapter 21. Amazing grace, right? The wretch that I was, right? Oh, love divine. It's pretty incredible, pretty powerful realities of who we were and then who we are now transformed in Jesus Christ. Amen. And so as we look, let's consider the, the, the powerful response that a, a, a gospel given personally really elicits. And so we're going we're gonna to see the cost, the personal cost tonight. We're going to see the personable, personal conviction tonight of personally relating the gospel. And then we're going to see Ultimately, uh, the, the personal call that kind of gets us through it all. And so Acts chapter 27, we're going to break up tonight into three readings because we have such a long passage tonight. Uh, let's look at verse 27 of chapter 21. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he even has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they have previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. At once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldier, they stopped beating Paul. And then the commander came up and took hold of him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian. Or maybe this is a question. Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when I had heard 
that he was addressing them, and when they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus, bought, uh, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous of God just as you are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women in prison, or prisons, and also the high priests, and all the council of the elders can testify from them. I also received the letters to the brethren and started off of Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners, but be punished. Remember what brought Paul to Jerusalem in the first place, or one of the main things, one of the main themes in Acts and, and really throughout uh, his letter in Corinth, uh, the, the Macedonians, so Thessalonica, uh, uh, Colossae, there's, there's, there's a theme, a burden that was given to Paul back, uh, Paul writes of it in Galatians chapter 2, um, given back to, to Paul and Barnabas as they were kind of commissioned uh, from the apostles. That is, the collection for the Jews. Paul's consumed about it. He gives instructions to the Corinthians, right? Save what you have. And at the beginning of the first of the week, put a little bit of what you save so that when I come, you can give something. And, and, and that way you, you don't have to sacrifice a whole week's worth of something to give me something to go back to, to Jerusalem. They, the, the apostles asked Paul and Barnabas, Right to do a few things, and one of the things that they said, and that Paul reminds us of, or or makes evident in Galatians chapter two, is remember the poor in Jerusalem. There was a famine, and so there was a need, and perhaps it was the wisdom of the apostles that that tried to really unify the the new church, the Jeru, uh, the church in Jerusalem, which was largely centered around the temple still, and and and, and the Jew and. And the church that was, according to Acts 1.8, starting to spread and become more and more made up of those who were Gentiles. And that caused a problem, didn't it? I mean, Romans addresses it. Galatians addresses it. I mean, everywhere. Paul addresses the problem, right, that, that some had. Gentiles had the problem. Jews certainly had the problem. And, and so there was a, there was a way to... to to physically show unity, not just spiritually. And so Paul, as he, as he kind of moves through Acts chapter 21, I think Luke really helps us understand that there's a, there's a personal cost when we relate the gospel. And a personal cost uh, can, be, can be a powerful thing. It's a cost that each one of us bear as someone who relates the gospel. We understand that through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter makes that very clear, that we'll suffer like Jesus suffered. Paul makes that abundantly clear, and he testifies to that and moves towards that even here in Jerusalem. And so Paul puts the cost of others first. He, he demonstrates this collection. He addresses it all over the place, and he even, he even foregoes getting getting money which he, which he really states up front to, uh, to the Corinthian church and to the Galatian church that, hey, those who minister in the gospel deserve to be helped financially so that they can continue to minister in the gospel. 
But then Paul, in the same breath, says, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to work with my hands, and I'm going to demonstrate that I'm not here to get money from you. But what does Paul ask money for? <laughs> to the same people, he asks money to go back to Jerusalem for the collection. So this is a pretty, this is, this is a life, I would say, this is kind of a life-changing thing for Paul, this collection. He orients his life in such a way that, that he makes sure that, that the churches outside of Jerusalem don't, don't look at him as just a money guy. You know? He's refusing to take it personally, but he's willing to take it for the church in, in Jerusalem. How powerful is that? That's a pretty powerful thing. You know, unlike the, 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 the TV preachers, right, who, who get you into emotional tizzy and say, you know, your life will be this and this and this and everything will be good. Just send your check here. There's obviously a little bit of a question that we have of their motives. Well, Paul's motives were unquestioned because he, he counted the cost of putting others first. He did this here in the context with his time, leading up to Jerusalem with the collection, yes, but also with his time. Look at verse 27. When the, what, seven days were almost over. Do you remember what that is from last week? That is the seven-day purification period that Paul was willing to undergo because most people think that, that, that he was viewed from, a, from the law, from the Jewish standpoint, he was viewed as unclean because he had been with Gentiles. And so he kind of meets up with four other guys who are probably doing a Nazarite vow. And, and, and at any rate, he, 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 in the context previous to this, he's willing, right, to, to pause for seven days to do something that's totally unnecessary for the gospel, but yet totally necessary to convince people that he is here for Christ and Christ alone. He's willing to put himself and his, his, his desires to move the gospel forward the way he sees. He's willing to kind of put himself aside so that he can reach more of the Jewish brethren and, and, and comfort them that, that he really is not throwing out the law from a, tra from a tradition standpoint, not from a salvific standpoint, but from a, a customs standpoint. And so Paul uh, does great, uh, great, he pauses for seven days in, a, in, a, in, by the way, an already volatile situation, which, as, we'll, as we see here, really kind of leads yet to the opposite effect. It may, it may calm the Jewish believers, but it certainly, uh, uh, you know, brings up, I mean, kicks up the dust, as it were, the... The, the unrest of the Jews outside of the church it gives them an opportunity to frame Paul, essentially, as we read. Trophimus. Um, you know, he was, he was a man, verse 28 says, who preached, uh, and Luke is recounting this through, through the, the Jews, right? Not the Jewish believers, but the Jews who are who are all emotionally stirred up, we'll see. Luke accounts this in verse 28. They were crying out, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere. I, mean, I mentioned last week, some people think that as we tally up the, the journeys of Paul, that he went about 15,000 miles. I mean, go back to verse 1 of chapter 21. 
right? Luke gives us this, this little account. When we had parted from them, we had set sail, we ran into straight course to Kos, then to Rhodes, to, to, to Patera, having found the ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. Uh, we kind of rounded through Cyprus and Syria and, and, and landed at Tyre, right? I mean, all within 12 days, he gets from there to Ptolemaeus later on in the text. I mean, the guy was all over the place and everywhere he went, right? His testimony is sure, man who preaches to all men everywhere. Now, the Jews saw it as, as preaching against, his, against them, against their laws and their customs. But obviously, he was preaching Christ. You know, this is true in Lystra. We see Jews following him from place to place. They, they follow him to, to Antioch and to Iconium. And, and, and the same thing happens in Berea when, when Jews from Thessalonica follow him and and they, they don't follow him in esteem. They're following him to stone him. They're following him to beat him. They're following him to throw him out. Uh, we see this in the text in verse 27. Right? When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from, not from Jerusalem, the Jews from where? Asia. They followed Paul here on his trip. They were stirred up. They were so threatened. He was a man who saw the cost, and he counted the cost um, even through his time and, and certainly through his talents. I mean, Acts chapter 18 records the fact that he was a tent maker. I, I mentioned that he did not ask for money, but at times when he needed something, he, he, he got out his tent making skills. He sold tents. You know, look at, look at verse 39 with me. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus. And then he repeats that again in verse 30, uh, excuse me, in verse 3 of the next chapter, of chapter 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus. He makes a point about Tarsus. Why is that? Well, it was no insignificant city. I was recently watching a, uh, I don't know why, so you can tell, you know, I probably need to stop doing these sort of things. But I was recently watching a, a, a I guess you could call it a documentary, a, a, a vanimentary, vanity menary uh, about uh, super mega yachts. It would be fun to have a mega yacht, but it would also cost a lot of money, which I don't have, and it would cost a lot to maintain. And but I would bring you guys on it, so that would be fun. Um, but, it, but there was this billionaire who had like this, and it wasn't just a mega yacht, but it was like a specialized mega yacht. It was super huge. It was one of the biggest in the world, private yachts in the world. And, and it had, you know, it had a hall for being able, a hole, hall, hall, for being able to go into, um, into like Alaska and Antarctica and places where there's icebergs. So, it could, you know, it could withstand some of that. It was like a, it was, I forget the term, but it was a special yacht, specialty yacht, okay? And, you know, obviously, you invite people in, and so he had this party on this boat where they're all freezing. You could just come to Cleveland and enjoy that, right? But, but 
but the, it is, it's kind of funny. The, the documentary at, at one point kind of makes light of the fact that everywhere he's going in his, in his yacht with all the people that he invited, he's, he's going out and he's bragging about all the places that he owns. And, and, and it's funny because they, they repeat like he has this line and they repeat this saying over and over again to his different conversations. I mean, they, they repeat it like almost 10 times, so it's quite humorous. And he says, oh yeah, I have a, I have a house in upstate New York, New York and I have a, an apartment in New York City and, and uh, I have a, a, uh, an apartment in Miami and, and I've got a house in Rome. Oh yeah, a house in Rome. And, and he's just going, and, and so they repeat that every time to the point where it's like, Really? You have a mega yacht. It's obvious you have money. Do you really need to puff your chest up that much? I guess he did. Did. And it's important to him. Right? We get the idea. You're a super rich guy, and you want people to know about it. Well, in, in one sense, Paul kind of, through the Holy Spirit, Luke records it, but he, and not, in a, not in, in a totally opposite way, in a way for us to get some gleaning, he kind of, puffs up his chest, as it were, and lets us know that, that Tarsus is where he's from. And it's not an insignificant city. And it's important for several reasons. I mean, it was a, it was a, a chief city in the Roman uh, provi- provi- province of Asia Minor. It was an educational center. We know he was trained by Gamaliel, and whether he was trained there or not, it, it, it's really immaterial, but, but he had a lot of training he was uh, by probably trilingual, really, uh, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. Um, and by the way, it, 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 by on all accounts, it was the center of tent making. So it's no wonder that Paul was a tent maker. Um, there were, there were uh, the mountains of Taurus, and uh, pretty, pretty cold climate the higher you get up. And so the, the, the goats had a had a longer hair or wool or whatever, I guess a goat, so wool, uh, hair. And, uh, and apparently this, this, this particular goat grew this particular hair that was particularly nice for tent making. And so it was a, a tent making city. And, and so Paul gets his, his, his uh, skills and his kind of the, the, the culture from where he's at. It's also a crossroads, east and west. It's not quite in the intersection of, of trade routes from the east and the west, but, but it's close enough, and, and it's important in that regard. So the, the Greco-Roman culture really kind of collides there, and then Paul being a Jew, a Hebrew, uh, and his upbringing um, really kind of culminates to make Paul very uniquely qualified to be a man who can reach to the Jews with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but a man who also can understand the culture of the Gentile. And so he's respected on all accounts. And and quite frankly, this, this helps us to understand the kind of life that ultimately Paul set aside. We understand he was trained by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5. Um, Luke accounts it here. We understand that he was a Pharisee, and he, he, he kind of includes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he was, he was on his way, and yet he sets things aside at, at, at personal cost 
at the cost of putting others first because he's personally relating the gospel. And, and so it's very instructive for us that, that God often asks us to do that, doesn't he? At least from the world standpoint, right? We would look at that and say, you know what, it's, it's, it's not really setting anything aside. It's, it's, it's lunging forward and grabbing God into Christ and all he brings and his inheritance is his, his promises. Well, that's, that's how Paul viewed it. But others didn't quite get it. And they were, quite frankly, they were threatened by it. And I can't tell you how many people in my own life were, were threatened by my choice to, to count the cost, as it were, and to follow Christ. I remember my, my dad, and I love my dad. I have a great relationship with my dad. But in high school, he looked at me and he says, you want to be what? You're never going to make any money that way. It was coming from my dad. I love you, Dad. Appreciate that. Way to, way to you know, encourage. You know? But he's not a safe man, so what can you expect? That's, but that's, what they, that's, that's, the, that's the lens, right? That, that the world, that those outside of Jesus Christ really view. We wouldn't view it that way at all, would we? We'd say we're, we're lunging forward, wonderfully engaging in, in the ability to personally relate the gospel with others. He does it through the cost of disciple-making. You know, he goes to the temple, and the temple is probably not the best place for Paul to go, considering the Jews from Asia are following him, and, and as we see in the text, just stirring everybody up. I mean, you can read the text again on your own. The, the, uh, starting in verse 27, we see just an, an incredible... Uh, uh, oh, I lost my place. Verse 27 um, of 21 why uh, the Jews from Asia seeing the temple began stirring up and you just keep on work 30 they provoked they took they took hold this emotional uh, the, uh, response now is, is is physical they're dragging him they're seeking to kill him and he um, has every intention personally relating the gospel and counting the cost even for those who he can make disciples. That's true. Paul identifies himself as the minister of Christ to the Gentiles. He says in Colossians that there's no distinction. He makes that very clear. And so he kind of throws himself in the middle of both the Jewish believers and the, non-Jew, or, and the Jewish non-believers. And Paul takes it really from all sides, willing to, willing to, to be a, a leader's leader and to try to personally relate the gospel and bringing young men like Titus and Timothy and Trophimus and others uh, with him. Uh, he identifies, like I said, not as a, as a Jew or a Gentile, but he identifies like we identify in Christ, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he becomes all things to all people, and that's not a, a, a weak, spineless statement but the but the, the reality is the reality there is that he's all things to all people for who? For Christ. Right? Because it doesn't matter. Right? I was, I was sitting here singing and looking over at our friends who are expressing song through sign language. And I just thought, how wonderful. How wonderful that we have black, that we have white, that we have Asian that we have people who speak some English and people who speak no English, people who, 
who can hear and people who can't, it doesn't matter. We all gather and we all identify. First and foremost is those in Christ, and Paul is setting the way for that as a disciple maker. He doesn't ever excuse himself from preaching the gospel. Go back and look at Acts chapter 13 and 14 and 17, and time and time again, Luke records for us that he preaches the gospel to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to everyone who will hear it. Why? Because he is seeking to become he is seeking to personally write the gospel and be a true disciple maker. Look at who he trains. He trains Trophimus at a great peril. He's, he's bringing him along. He brought seven non-Jews with him. He brought seven Gentiles with him, Luke records for us. And, and though Trophimus never went into the temple, Paul is accused of bringing him in, which would have been uh, a pretty abhorrent thing from the law to do. And even look at verse uh, number 38. Not only is he accused of, of being a troublemaker by bringing Trophimus in, uh, the, the Roman centurion, the, the Roman commander asks, Then are you not the Egyptian? who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Josephus records this. Josephus is a Jewish, early Jewish historian. And, uh, and he records this event, that, that this, this Egyptian false prophet came in and, and really led a revolt. And in some of his accounts, there's 30,000 men, ultimately, that, that follow this man. And so he was... He was uh, uh, prevented by the Romans to take hold in, in Jerusalem, but, but there's a historical man that kind of comes in and tries to do this. And, 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 and the Roman, in, in all of the, the fighting and all of the, the crowd stirring, and, and remember Luke records, some people were saying this and some people were saying this, it was chaotic. So much so that... that, that that the commander brought between 600 to 1,000 uh, 1, men with him. That stopped, as the, the text, as Luke told us, that stopped the, the hubbub for a second. And, and the commander has to essentially put Paul into protective custody because the Jews of the temple are in such an uproar against this man and against all that he stands for against the personal cost that he exemplifies. Cost of physical safety, as we read in this chapter. Several times, violence, shouting, beating, putting him in chains. Paul, as you know this very well, recounts the personal safety that that went by the wayside, being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I've had far more imprisonments. I've been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received the Jews, from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And at a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. 
And to really top it all off, Paul says, you know what? That's just the physical stuff. He says in verse 28, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. That was the heartbeat of the person who put others first. Of the person who saw himself last and Christ is supreme. Who truly wanted to personally relate the gospel as strongly as he could. You know, truly relating the gospel does cost something. That's what I'm trying to get across. Paul exemplifies that. He exemplified that through his financial status. He exemplified that through his physical status, his emotional status, his travel status, his time status. There wasn't an avenue of Paul's life that it didn't cost him something to be a true follower and a personal relator of the gospel. And I sit here and I marvel at that. And I, quite frankly, <laughs> say, wow, I have a long way to go. And I do need men in my life to show me that because it's far too easy to get too, too, too comfortable, isn't it? Now, we could praise the Lord that we don't have the kind of things that Paul dealt with. And I'm not asking for those things by any stretch of the imagination. Paul was a unique man in a unique time. And God has not called us to be Apostle Paul's, but God has still called us to count the costs. Amen. And we need to first count the costs the way the Apostle Paul did. And that is to personally relate the gospel. You know, it is a joy, isn't it? It may be a cost, but it is a joy when we personally relate the gospel with people and they come to the Lord and we can disciple them. Sure, and pastor's done a good job of saying there's going to be a cost to that. There's going to be a time cost. There's going to be an emotion cost. You may have to call off work because of a relationship with a disciple. Or you, you, you may have to rearrange your dinner plans because of it. You may have to add to your dinner plans because of it at times. But it's a joy at the end of the day. What Paul is agonizing over when we relate personally the gospel is the tremendous cost when it is rejected. And who in here loves to be rejected? But you know, never once is the Apostle Paul, and we're going to see that, never once is the Apostle Paul put first in that. He counts the costs, and he considers it. And at the end of the day, he says, it's all worth it. He says it in a supreme way. Remember, the context, Paul has been warned time and time again by the authority of the Spirit, not commanded, but just warned. Instructively for us, I think, you will find chains and imprisonment and death closer you get to Jerusalem. And yet Paul counts that cost and considers it far more exceedingly worth it to minister 
to relate the gospel personally. Not by letter, as he has done, but by person. In a tremendous way. What motivates us to get through such a cost? Paul, how did you do Why did you do it? What compels us? Well, I'd, I'd say it's the next part as we round the corner tonight. It is the certainty of Paul's call. It is the call. It is through the personal call that we see a, a powerful response to the gospel. Again, some may consider and accept and be transformed, and some may reject, but it is nonetheless the call that compels us and gets us through, as it were, the cost. What is the call? People can define that very mystically. Well, here in this context, and, and really just simply put, a call is a communication by God. Each one of us have been communicated with uh, or communicated from by God through the Word of God, as the Spirit of God works, and He calls us, each one of us, first and foremost to Himself. And so it's a communication by God that is received. The call, in that sense, is a communication of choice. First, it's a communication of choice. Let's look at verse 6 of chapter 22 now. We're going to read here uh, chapter 22. Verse 6, but it happened that as, it, as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice. They were not called of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go. Oh, that's pretty reminiscent of Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1. On into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews, but nonetheless a, uh, a believer who lived there, came to me and standing near said to, to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness of him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and, get, and be baptized uh, and, and, and wash away. And just the picture, the reality of what baptism pictures, wash away your sins calling on his name. It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. It's the Lord speaking there. And as I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another I used to imprison and beat those who believed. And when the blood of your witnesses, Stephen, was being shed, I was also there. I had the coats of those who were doing it. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up unto this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So Paul recounts in a very personal way his personal testimony, his call. We read in verse 14 that Ananias told Paul that God appointed, that, that word appointed uh, has the force 
of appointed for a certain function. It's not uh, a foreordination. It's not a, a predetermined appointing, but it's an appointing of a certain function. Um, it, it even brings with it a, a, a military connotation of, 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 of an appointment to, to accomplish something. And so Paul was appointed to accomplish something like you and I are appointed or called to accomplish something. Now, you and I may not have this, this meet Jesus on the Damascus Road, and I'm not saying that at a call by any stretch is, is akin to some sort of mystical or, or supernatural experience. But nonetheless, as we take uh, texts like Matthew chapter 28 and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where we're to be uh, 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 witnesses... And to, and to spread the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, we are called, nonetheless, not unlike in that sense, Paul, who is called for a particular purpose, a particular function. And so we can learn a lot about that reality. He is... He is encouraging, Luke is encouraging us, I think, through Paul's testimony that, that God, the God of heaven, can arrest someone like Saul, transform him, transform him into someone like Paul to accomplish his purposes. And he has done nothing less than that in you and in me today. We are called to accomplish his purposes. And by the way, his purposes have not changed. You and I are called to be Acts 1-8 witnesses, to go and to make disciples of all nations. It's the same call. It's the same command. It's the same God of heaven. And so the call is a choice for Paul, it's choice of God for Paul to accomplish God's purposes. And so it is true for you and for me. But it is also in equipping. When God calls us, he equips us. And this marries in so nicely to pastor again in his time in First Thessalonians and in Philippians this morning in verse 12. There was a certain man Ananias. Ananias knew the law well. But if we go back to Acts chapter 9, and we won't tonight, we go back there, we see that he, he, he became a believer, and he was concerned about even, oh, Lord, you know who this Saul is, right? Well, he knew the law well, and he lived an exemplary, exemplary life, even by all standards of the devout Jews. And he communicates this appointment to Paul. That's something that doesn't happen today. We have the word of God for sure. Uh, but, but, but right away, Paul is directed to a relationship to help him. I think that's a pretty substantial thing as we look throughout the New Testament. That is something that Paul will continue to do. Paul will go to Barnabas, and he'll learn from Barnabas, quite frankly, 
Barnabas was an exemplar, exemplary man who, who sold property in Acts chapter 4 and who the apostles teamed up with Paul so that they could go together and disciple. And then Paul takes that same mindset and we see men like Titus in Paul's life and Timothy and Trophimus even here where Paul is seeking to always make sure that the best way that God equips, yes, it's through the word of God, but it, but it ultimately is we've, we've been challenged through our pastor that it is, the, it, is, it, is, it is not enough to just simply be private with the word of God. It has, to be, it has to have a relationship. It has to have flesh and blood. And that flesh and blood needs to minister up and down the word to each other. And that, quite frankly, is the tremendous help. So sometimes we, we kind of go outside of just some of the simple things that called, God has called us to. We go outside of some of the simple things for help. You know, there's been at times, I won't get into that because of time, but we just go outside. And we really need to just get back down to the basics of, of, of one life to life for life, as our pastor puts it. I think Luke gives us even an example of that here, right off the start of Paul's testimony. The call is also a communication of a command. Now here, you know, Paul, uh, uh, Jesus says, get up and go to Paul. Um, and you know, I, I think that that would be true for each one of us if we read the New Testament we understand Jesus' words to us to get up and to go and to do and to make disciples. And so the call is certainly a command. We are saved, when we are saved, we are commanded to get up and go and, and, and called to do a particular function. And this function, I submit even through Paul's testimony, is always to make disciples. To make disciples. He Paul took the modeling and the, the imitating seriously. And Trophimus was there, and he did that. So we're saved, and, and at, at, at salvation we're commanded. That command is serving a function, and it is to make disciples. Remember, we find God's call here for us simply tonight as God's communicating with us. Now, he doesn't communicate, like I said, through these extraordinary means, but he certainly does do that through the Word of God and as we minister the Word of God to each other. And when we uh, take that communication and we receive it seriously, it brings about conviction. Conviction. And, and uh, we relate the gospel through personal conviction. It really does bring about a, a tremendously powerful response. And we see that here at the end of uh, Luke's account. Verses 22 through 30, Paul is going through salvation testimony, and he says, and Jesus called me to Gentiles, and right away he's cut off. And that brings them to an uproar again. Talking about the Gentiles was just too much. Paul doesn't even bring about, he doesn't even have time to, whether he intended to or not, he doesn't even bring about, hey guys, Trophimus was never here. He doesn't, he doesn't try to defend himself. He may not have time to. It's certainly not the first words 
out of his mouth. So he seeks to always put the Lord first. He's convicted about that. He, he's a man of conviction. Not defending self, but defending God. He's a man of conviction not to progress self, but to advance God. See that somewhat here in verse 25, but when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man? Oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty late into the account, Paul, to be bringing this kind of stuff up. But why? It's, it's really not the most important thing. Paul views him, his citizenship of heaven far superior to his citizenship of Rome, which was citizenship of birth, by the way. He, he makes that point. So Paul really does advance the gospel. He's convicted to do that. And as we close, I want us to consider tonight, you know, do we personally relate the gospel to others, and do we do it at, at a cost? Thankfully, we're not called like Paul to make that cost, like he did. But do we do it at a cost? It does cost us something. I mean, Jesus does say that. Peter says that. Paul demonstrates that. Do we do it at a cost? Do we do it knowing that we are called? We're called to, that is our life. That is our new life. That's it. Everything else that we do. So some of us, we've gone through tremendously painful things in life. And, and all I could say is, I have not had that bad of a life. Some of you have, have gone through tremendously painful things. And, and, in, and in a way, you can say, God, why? Well, I, I can't tell you why. And, and they're probably not the same things that the Apostle Paul went through. But, but when you understand who you are and what you've been called to do, those painful things, as painful and as central, perhaps, to your life as they may seem are not it. They're not it. They don't define you. And ultimately, we're called to set those things aside and to relate the gospel. And, and it may just be that God allowed some things in your, into your life so that you can personally relate the gospel in a very personal way to those who, you, who God brings into your life. So will you do something this week? I was hoping to have enough time, but, but we don't. Will you... Will you just consider personally relating the gospel to someone. Many of you do, and I appreciate that, and, and it's, it's a blessing to have a pastor who exemplifies that and calls on you to exemplify that. But will you, will you consider that this week? And, and, and don't, don't be ashamed to, to get real personal, like salvation personal testimony those in your life. We don't have time, but everywhere Paul goes, even to those in, in Colossae, 
Everywhere Paul goes, everywhere he writes, he, he begs them. He's convicted that this is the God of heaven that has called, and so it's the God of heaven who will provide. And he begs the believers everywhere to pray. So this week, will you join me and keep me accountable to share my testimony with others and to be prayerfully considering that? And if, if, there's, if there's some in this room that have maybe heard pastor's message this morning and, and said, do you have a disciple or do you have someone you're following? And you'd say, you know, I don't. And I, and I, was even, I didn't even want to come up front. And I, I, I'm kind of, where do I start? Maybe just start by telling your testimony to someone this week and asking God to do something with it. We'll see what God does. Now, remember, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of people in Paul's life that reject that. But there's also quite a few. Men like Timothy, who go on to be one of the anchors of the church, who are transformed through the power of God. Father, tonight, I pray that you would help us to, to love you, so much so that we are compelled to, to personally relate the gospel with others this week. And, and to do it with conviction. To do it understanding that you've called us to do that. And to do it at, at sometimes tremendous cost. Not in an unwise way. Not in a, a cavalier way. Not in a, a badge of, of, of martyrdom. But in true, private, personal cost. And Lord, you'll give the increase and you'll give the power. It's in your name we pray. Amen.